Welcome to This Functional Life, a show for women just like you, who are ready for more health, vitality, passion, purpose. We're going to deconstruct norms, uncover your deepest desires, harness your physical and mental health, and peel back the layers to uncover exactly what you want out of life. I'm your host, Betty Murray, part geek, part magician, and your new medical bestie with a dash of sass. I love taking complex science and making it easy to understand and integrate into daily life. Join the journey to make this chapter the best ever. Let's get thriving. So today's show is going to be the start of a deep dive in all things autoimmune. If most of you have listened to or even heard my story, you know part of the reason why I came to functional medicine and functional nutrition is because of my own autoimmune history. And so it's been a deep underpinning of my practice for over 18 years. And it's still something I spend an extraordinary amount of time helping people with dietary and nutritional interventions. And in my clinic, you know, we have internal medicine, we even have rheumatology within the clinic. So it is a a big, big part of what we do day to day to help our clients and patients. And so today I want to talk specifically about sex hormones and the relationship with autoimmune diseases. But just to get started, let's give a little bit of context because we don't really know the precise cause of autoimmune conditions. And the truth is, is most people are always looking for this single silver bullet. What was the cause? And the truth is, is autoimmune conditions are probably one of the most distinct and widely varied uh, diseases that have the most wide variety of causes that are often multifactorial. So let's talk about what may cause autoimmunity. Number one, it can run in genetics. So if you have a relative that has been diagnosed with an autoimmune disease, some of these autoimmune diseases have strong genetic underpinning Uh, particularly one called ankylosing spondylitis, has some very clear genetic triggers. But you could also be somebody that may carry the gene for an autoimmune condition and have it not turn on. Or you could be somebody that has been diagnosed with an autoimmune condition and also not have a gene associated with it. So it is not definitive. If you have an autoimmune condition, so I always like to describe autoimmune conditions kind of like a gang. Two guys are at your car and they're going to gang up and steal your purse. And there's four or five other ones around the corner seeing if they need to help out. So what does that really mean? It means that once you have an autoimmune condition, the mechanisms, which we're going to go over in this series, can trigger other autoimmune conditions because they have shared mechanisms. So your likelihood of having one and then another becomes greater. One of the most profound things that we know, and there's very good research Looking at this specifically, there was a book that came out in the early to mid-2000s called The Autoimmune Epidemic that I think did a great job of explaining this, but exposure to toxins, particularly environmental toxins. So one of the things that we've known from the 50s, 60s, and 70s is areas where there were Superfund sites, which means those are sites where there was significant um, dumping of chemicals that were hidden, often from the industrial age. And in especially uh, areas of the country that we kind of call the Rust Belt, where there was a lot of industrial effort, uh, a lot of those toxins were buried in the ground and then covered up with things like, oh, I don't know, playgrounds, schools. Well, what we know is environments and neighborhoods that are around those Superfund sites have an exponentially larger incidence of autoimmune conditions, particularly things like lupus, 
So exposure to environmental toxins is going to be a major, major player. Obesity. So what's interesting is obesity in itself is its own risk factor for autoimmune conditions because it causes inflammation. If you are overweight or obese, your likelihood is greater just because you're more inflamed in general. And then the other things that lead to that weight gain, like insulin resistance and the other hormonal aspects, are going to drive it. One of the other ones that's very big is infections. And the first one I want to talk about just briefly today, and then we're going to deep dive later on, is viral infections. So there is no other thing on the planet as ubiquitous and as prevalent at changing our DNA and the function of our cells than viruses. And so getting a viral infection can in itself trigger your immune system to turn on self. So I'm going to give a really good example. I happen to get you know, our very happy pandemic virus when the Delta variant came out. And I I fared very well. I actually made it through, you know, with a little bit of fatigue, but I felt pretty good. But immediately after I had it, and then several months later, I tested all of my hormones. I tested all of my blood work. And lo and behold, for the first time, I came back with anti-thyroglobulin antibodies, which means that I came back positive for Hashimoto's. That viral infection Prior to it, I had never had antibodies. And after that, I did. Now, flash forward almost a year later, I do not anymore because I took steps to try and kind of calm down that immune response. So infections, particularly viral, can drive it. Other infections, so bacterial and or fungal infections can also drive autoimmunity. So having any kind of infection that you pick up, particularly if it's pathogenic, bacteria or yeast like candida, that can trigger the immune system to go awry because your body is already attacking. And some medications. So several medications like blood pressure medications, antibiotics, statins, and other medications can trigger autoimmune conditions. So not all medications are safe. And I know probably most of the people listening to me are probably not Uh, huge fans of big pharma, but we have to be careful because some of those drugs can and will trigger autoimmune activity. A couple of the other ones that may not get a lot of press, particularly in standard, uh, standard media outlets are things like foods and food sensitivities and food antibodies and, and allergies. I'm going to take a deep, deep dive into that on a single show, but When our immune system sees something that we're eating as other, right? So if it's the kid with a peanut and they can't touch a peanut without the immune system kind of going sideways, that in itself is an inappropriate immune response. And there is good research out there showing that an inappropriate immune response with different antibodies, particularly the IgG and the IgA forms, which I will talk about, are prevalent in foods and prevalent in other autoimmune conditions. Colitis has some good research out there. Crohn's has some good research out there. So foods that were once completely safe for you to eat, maybe at one point, can at some point become immune stimulating. Celiac disease, which is the most common autoimmune condition that we see, it's assumed to be almost 10% of the population may have some form of celiac or gluten sensitivity. And it is the only one that we actually know the cause of. We can label you with almost a little over a hundred different labels of different autoimmune conditions, but celiac disease, which is the destruction of the small intestines to the consumption of gluten and gliadin-containing grains, wheat, rye, spelt, barley, trical, and kumut, 
cause the immune system to attack and destroy the small intestines. So that has become the poster child of all autoimmune conditions because it's the only one we know the cause of. Definitely gluten and foods and food proteins, amino acids, um, peptides that are inside foods can become immune stimulating. One of the other major things too is dysbiosis. So dysbiosis is a fancy way of saying, are my gut bugs, my gut bacteria out of balance? And I will say pretty much if you look in in PubMed and do a, a literature search for the word intestinal permeability, which is the technical term for leaky gut, and you go to look, there is an extraordinary tens of thousands of studies talking about intestinal permeability. But in autoimmunity, intestinal permeability and dysbiosis almost always go hand in hand. So when that gut bacteria um, are out of balance, so think of your gut as a jungle. And within the jungle, I should have furry little fluffy creatures. I should have birds. I should have squirrels. I should have snakes. I should have insects. And if the snakes and insects overgrow or become out of balance, the entire jungle then is no longer healthy. And that is true for our own microbiome in our gut. And this is actually, I, I know more about the microbiome in, in the gut than I ever thought I would because it's, that's the subject area of my dissertation for my PhD. So your microbes being out of balance can lead you to a higher risk for autoimmune conditions. And then the one I want to talk about today is specifically being female. So this was, you know, one of the major things that sort of prompted me when I started looking at my own health was I figured out the statistics that close to 80%, nine out of 10 women or nine out of 10 people that have autoimmune conditions are women. So it depends on which ones you're looking at, but a fully at least 78 to 90% of the people that get diagnosed with autoimmune conditions are women. So it is a preponderance of women that actually get diagnosed with these diseases and these diseases happen earlier in life. So one of the other things that gets said often in the media is that, well, we didn't see autoimmune conditions a hundred years ago because we didn't live that long. So the life expectancy in, in 1900 was about 57 years for a female. So many of our other diseases like heart disease and and cancer either showed up early or we skirted that issue because we died younger. And a lot of the reason why we were living so much longer is we've got better sanitation, actually. All right, not our medical system, because let's face it, the United States has the most expensive and some of the poorest outcomes in Western medicine, but it is truly sanitation that is what allowed us to live so much longer. And then medical developments to be able to keep us alive if we get a chronic condition, but it doesn't necessarily mean we're preventing those. So that brings me back to the female thing. So this was a big question I had for myself because I said, wow, why is it as women, we seem to pay the burden so heavily for the right and the ability to reproduce and carry a baby and make sure that the species goes on? It felt like it was an unfair disadvantage to women. So let's talk a little bit about what's happening and why. The first thing you need to know is autoimmune conditions are basically your immune system and different branches of your immune system and different types of cells, which I will go into, mistaking your body parts or parts of you as something other. That's what it means, autoimmune. And ultimately, what often is happening here is we have a thing called molecular mimicry. 
That means your body may be attacking something else like a virus or a bacteria or a candida yeast or something like that, or it's reacting to some other molecule. And in the process of the attack, it gets turned on and turned against other tissues. What could that be? That could be the intestines, you know, like celiac or Crohn's or colitis. It could be the joints like ankylosing spondylitis or rheumatoid arthritis. It could be the connective tissue like lupus and and scleroderma and Sjogren's. It could be any number of body tissues. So autoimmune disease and the hormones have a bi-directional relationship. And immune stimulation can contribute to hormone imbalances and hormone imbalances can contribute to the onset of autoimmune diseases. And even, even autoimmune diseases can cause an, a hormone insufficiency or an imbalance. And there are certain imbalances that are common. So hormones are obviously produced by a bunch of glands in your body. Specifically, the two target glands we're going to talk about today are your ovaries that produce estrogen. And we produce three different estrogens. And we have our adrenals that produce uh, androgens like DHEA and testosterone and also produce progesterone. And they are definitely interrelated. You know, so the first thing you have to think about is our bodies are designed to be in balance or homeostasis. And those essential hormones are estrogens, our testosterone, our progesterone, cortisol, insulin, thyroid. They are all designed to be in balance with each other. They aren't always equal to each other and they fluctuate, many of them, throughout the month. But it's when they are out of balance wildly that we can have a cascade of hormonal changes that can lead to things like inflammation, cell dysfunction, tissue damage, which also then contribute to autoimmune diseases. And then obviously, if we have nutritional factors and lifestyle factors that contribute, such as nutrient deficiencies, excess sugar intake, or chronic stress, it's going to make it even worse. Let's talk a little bit about where this shows up. So we have these periods in our reproductive life where autoimmune conditions are more likely to occur. So I mentioned the fact that we, you know, we didn't have as many of these in the turn of the century 1900. It is now assumed, depending on who you talk to, that there are over 50 million people with at least one autoimmune condition, the majority of which do not know. They may be dealing with symptoms and they have not been properly diagnosed. And so this is rampant and it is one of the leading causes of mortality and morbidity in women under the age of 50. So it strikes young. So most autoimmune conditions are early onset diseases. So they strike people in their teens, in their 20s and 30s and reproductive years. There are a few autoimmune conditions like rheumatoid arthritis that tend to also have a, a, let's say a second wave in our second season of life. The majority of people getting diagnosed are in these younger reproductive years. And I can tell you after 18 years of practice, the number of young women coming in because they've been diagnosed with Hashimoto's and two or three other things is significantly more today than it was 18 years ago. What this means is, is that there's this bi-directional relationship with our fluctuation of estrogen in particular, which it's estrogen that, that actually starts your period. So it's the relative relationship between a hormone called follicular stimulating hormone and luteinizing hormone along with estrogen that causes us to ovulate. And then the second half of our cycle is when progesterone comes up and meets estrogen and gets the uterine lining prepared for implantation. 
And it's the dance between these hormones that allow us to become fertile, but it's also the dance between these hormones when they're out of balance becomes significantly out of balance. Now we have that start when we are a young girl. And once we have a right amount of body fat, which is somewhere between 10 to 12% of our body weight is body fat, our body will actually kick into this activity. So we see periods in younger girls because they we have children that are much larger than they were before. So their body fat may be higher at a younger age. We also have all the other things in our environment that may stimulate and look like estrogens and and trigger this. But that first onset of sex hormones that actually sets up the start of our periods is also the first change in our hormones. We see autoimmune conditions often getting diagnosed around this particular time, sometimes earlier, but let's say the majority. And then you see a second wave in your kind of late teens, early 20s, which is when a girl will reach a sexual maturation, which is kind of your ideal time period for procreation and fertility. Maybe not perfect, maybe not, uh, let's say, uh, socioeconomically and other things, but we were designed to have babies fairly young. And as a matter of fact, a pregnancy after 29 years old is considered a geriatric pregnancy. So our our fertility maximum is in our 20s. We then start to head into perimenopause. We can see changes in our hormones and we see sort of an uptick in autoimmune conditions then too, as you head into those years around menopause. And then there's a significant uptick in, in diagnosis of autoimmune conditions after pregnancy, which is a radical shift in your hormones and then a radical shift back. And, and there's a lot of different reasons for that, many of which I will go into, but we have these sort of pockets of time in a woman's life where we're more likely to be diagnosed with an autoimmune condition. So if we know that hormone imbalances can trigger an autoimmune condition, how do you know if your hormones are out of balance? Now, if you've listened to uh, my series on why it's hard to lose weight over 40, we went through a bunch of these symptoms. If you haven't, here's some of them. So do you have heavy periods? Do you have insomnia or sleep issues, particularly the second half of your cycle? Do you get hot flashes, tender breasts, anxiety, food cravings like sugar, hair loss, changes in your hair, skin, and nails, um, feeling cold or getting hot flashes, mood swings, heavy periods, painful periods, fatigue, just not feeling quite like yourself could be a sign. So any woman reading that list would say, I have at least half of those all the time. Chances are many of us are dealing with these autoimmune conditions. So let's talk specifically about the hormones related to autoimmunity. There's been a long debate, obviously, about why, you know, women 10 to 1 compared to men have so much more um, autoimmune conditions. So estrogen, number one, is not just one hormone. It's actually three different hormones, one called estrone, estradiol, and estriol. And it does more than just, you know, regulate your reproductive system. It actually helps you maintain a healthy heart, healthy bones, and healthy skin, particularly estradiol. Estrogen also enhances the inflammatory response because it actually triggers antibody activity. So let me say that again. Estrogen is immune stimulating. It increases the activity of the immune system, both what we call the innate and the adaptive immune system stimulating more autoantibodies and more antigen-presenting antibody activity, and it stimulates both sides, both and the humoral and the, um, the cell side of your immune signaling. So the take-home message here, without me diving into a really deep dive, dive into biology, is estrogen stimulates all sides of the immune system. 
And particularly when we come out of states where we might be estrogen dominant, meaning that we had a lot compared to the other hormones, you have a higher risk of stimulating a inflammatory response. And so those out-of-balance estrogens, particularly estrone and estrone sulfate, which is a, is a breakdown product of estrone, may switch on autoantibody production and then trigger the uh, B cells to make more antibodies and to trigger antigen presenting. So all of a sudden now the immune system is looking for more problems and creating more immune problems. So this often happens when we're in perimenopause, which is that decade or so before we actually go through menopause. And so a lot of women, even if they've been diagnosed earlier, when they hit their 40s, all this stuff sort of ramps up because they are automatically by default heading into an estrogen dominant state because the other hormone progesterone has started to decline because it starts to decline in our 30s and declines radically in our 40s which is why we have fertility issues. So estrogen dominance relative to progesterone increases your likelihood for having autoimmune conditions. The other thing that we know is the androgens. So the male side of our hormones that we make, but we make a lot less than men, are statistically low in women with autoimmune conditions. So you can go out and look this up on PubMed if you'd like to. DHEA, which is our counterbalance hormone that counterbalances cortisol and stress response. And it's also the precursor to testosterone and our other androgens like androstenedione and androsterone. Those hormones are all low statistically, particularly um, lupus, Sjogren's, uh, scleroderma all have really good research showing low levels of androgens are much more prevalent in women that have those autoimmune conditions. And there are some studies even looking at treating women with doses of DHEA, improving symptoms like dry eye, dry mouth, and Sjogren's. We're going to have a greater autoimmune flare capacity or a startup, everything from joint pain to hair loss, migraines, psoriasis, eczema, RA, whatever, when we're in that time of life where estrogen becomes more, more uh, prevalent. Exposure to toxins. So I mentioned this. So almost all of our toxins, the over 87 to 90,000 chemicals that we have in our environment, both in our foods and the pesticides, herbicides, plasticizers, phthalates, all of those things to some degree are endocrine disrupting, they are estrogenic in effect. So to some degree, they add to this total body burn-in that can increase your driving of autoimmune conditions. So we have toxins as a whole, just damaging the DNA and turning on the immune system. And then we also have toxins that have an estrogenic effect that will drive it as well. And so all of these things will can, can do that. And I mentioned particularly one. So I have Obviously, a special fascination around hormones, the dysfunction of the immune system, how it plays a role in everything from metabolic activity to autoimmunity. And I have a deep, deep passion for the estrogen-sensitive cancers and are we barking up the wrong tree? And is it really that estrogen's so bad, right? And that's a whole nother conversation. However, we have those three estrogens. We have estradiol, estriol, and estrone. Estrone in particular is a is a more pro-inflammatory estrogen and it acts as a holding tank so your body can make more estradiol which is the protective one and when we go through menopause the production and tissue levels of estrone stay roughly the same but estradiol drop off radically and goes basically to nothing well estrone can be broken down into compounds called estrogen metabolites or estrone 
metabolites. And if you've listened to some of my discussions about metabolic changes in your DNA, how we get rid of these metabolites can basically drive whether we can get our estrogens out to the trash or not. Estrone sulfite, which is um, and becomes estrone sulfate and hydroxyestrone, all of those are toxic estrogen byproducts that your body has to sort of step through to get rid of. So think of these as sort of intermediate toxins that your body creates. And if it can't get that intermediate toxin wrapped up and thrown in the trash can, it circulates around the body. And what they found is that this estrone sulfate and the es- all the estrone metabolites, in particular in the sulfate pathway, damages the DNA in cells. And it may contribute to things like lupus, autoantibodies, and antibodies against host DNA. That would be your DNA. So not only do we have a situation where as women, we have more immune stimulation, depending on how we're wired genetically, we may make these toxic byproducts that make us more at risk for autoimmune conditions. And oh, hey, by the way, it also increases your risk of cancer as well, estrogen sensitive cancers. I have done a deep dive in this because I have all of the mutations in those DNA pathways where I'm not good at getting my estrone metabolites out on their own. I have to help it along by doing different things nutritionally, which I talked about at length, talking about my DNA. So it's not only about the estrogen you make or your relative relationship between your progesterone and your androgens like testosterone. It's also about whether you can get rid of your metabolites. So it's super important to know what estrogen does. And we know also that cortisol, the stress response, the major hormone driving stress and responding to stress is often dysfunctional. I would say almost 100% of probably everybody I've ever met has some level of stress dysfunction. And if I have high cortisol, it's going to lower your inflammation originally in the early short term. A short-term cortisol response actually lowers inflammation. But when it's prolonged and protracted, our body and our cells become desensitized to it. And it actually becomes cortisol resistant, just like insulin resistant. We have less capacity to ease that inflammatory response. So if you're a female who has estrogen dominance or has toxins or other things that lead to this dominant estrogen expression, and you have had prolonged protracted stress, i.e. you're a female, you're going to have a higher risk because this cortisol resistance the excess cortisol driving um, an inability for the anti-inflammatory cascade to work properly along with estrogen is going to drive autoimmune diseases, particularly Hashimoto's, alopecia, which is hair loss, multiple sclerosis, all have really strong research looking at that. So let's, let's get a little deeper dive into what actually is happening here. So I don't want to get too far into the weeds because I think sometimes we can just get into biochemical weeds and it's very confusing. But sometimes you'll hear that autoimmune conditions are either adaptive or part of your innate immune system. And there's actually a cascade of activities that happen that really um, sort of smear these lines now that we understand it. And estrogen plays a role in both. When we look at our, our hormone pathways, estrogen, we also know that estrogen not only affects our genes and affects kind of the gene cascade that I was talking about, like our ability to get rid of it. But it also crosstalks with other signaling cascades, other other mechanisms. 
So it binds to different proteins and activates different intracellular. So between cell immune responses, those cells are things like B cells. So we actually have a signaling and sort of triggering of the immune cell receptors on B cells that signal an activation for B cells to amplify. And then we also see that once those B B cells amplify, we get a change in T cell activity. So what does that mean? So estrogen suppresses in the beginning T cell and B cell production. But at the same time it does that, it activates the B cells that are circulating. And then it influences T cell activity, specifically at the thymus, which is one of the glands that produce these cells. So when I have a lot of estrogen, it reduces the thymus function. It makes the thymus gland shrink or atrophy. And then we get all these um, precursor cells out in the thymus and the bone marrow. And then we get the stimulation of other cells, other cascading cells that then stimulate the immune system. Essentially, estrogen makes your thymus shrink. It makes your body produce less than capable thymus cells. And those those cells increase, the precursors increase in the bone marrow and the thymus gland itself. And then estrogen activates the T-cell differentiation, particularly in the liver. So T-cells then differentiate into other immune cells And then between them, they create an inflammatory response. So ultimately, estrogen not only influences the development of T cells, but it it increases activation. It increases cytokine production differentiation. So T cells producing cytokine response and the regulatory function of T cells. So estrogen is a massive mediator of both B cell and T cells. So what does that really mean? Ultimately, we have estrogen stimulating B cell and T cell activity and affecting the thymus and the immune cells themselves at a minimum. Then we've got all these other things that we talked about in autoimmunity, right? The infections, the gut microbiome and other things. Well, it just so happens that microbes can bind to various other pathogen receptors, things that are called toll-like receptors. And we even have these things called pathogen-associated molecular patterns. So ultimately what this means is when we have infections or we have pathogenic bacteria or we have other things, we have a greater expression of these receptors in women than men. We also have a greater response and overall inflammatory response in females. So the immune responses may also be associated to a difference in immune cell populations. So we have natural killer cells and cells that are called CD4 and CD8 cells that we know decline as we age. Um, And although women show naturally lower natural killer cells and cells called memory T regulatory cells that actually regulate the immune response compared to men, which is why we see this more sex-biased immune response and cytokine production. Essentially, immune responses to environmental factors like your infections, your whether they're viral, bacterial, or fungal, and even things like vaccinations are sex-biased, right? Women are going to have a greater response. We maintain a higher immune reactivity um, post a viral infection, and we have a higher antibody response as a whole. 
to anything, including uh, vaccination. And this is why we see enhanced immune reactivity and we may see enhanced symptomology and pro-inflammatory cytokines whenever we have a woman being, being exposed to any of these potential autoimmune triggers. If we look at all of that, what do you do to sort of take and put all those pieces together? So the other part is we see this uptick in autoimmunity um, in women post-pregnancy. And part of it is as women, we have this evolutionary preservation of mankind that is driving part of our immune response. Um, So during our reproductive years, that enhanced response to infections that women have is to help maintain health for reproduction. And when we age as women, reproductive function isn't required anymore. So as women, we're, and as, as humans, we're one of just two mammals that actually survive significantly after reproductive years. Why? We're not really sure. But as that reproductive time period goes by, that immune enhancement reactivity with changes in immune cells seems to decline a little bit. So we see this higher immune reaction because we also have the requirement of the body to, during reproductive years, to protect us against infection so we can actually procreate. So the question of whether pregnancy might help trigger autoimmune diseases is still up for debate. What's interesting is they did a study in Denmark. They pulled medical records from over 1 million women in Denmark born between 1962 and 1992. Of these women, 43.4% had not been pregnant, 44.3% had their first pregnancy delivered conventionally, and 7.6% had their first pregnancy delivered via C-section, and 4.1% had abortions. Of the approximate 1 million that they investigated, 25,570 developed autoimmune diseases. The researchers found that in the first year after conventional vaginal delivery or C-sections, women had a 15 to 30% greater risk respectively. So 15% via vaginal delivery, 30% via C-section of contracting or becoming sick with an autoimmune condition. Surprisingly, the risk of this appeared to be 30% lower if the woman had an abortion in that, within that first year. So what, what do we think? Um, so the scientists knew from other work in this, in this um, field that cells from the fetus actually start to circulate in their mother's blood very early in pregnancy. So what that means is we got a transference of fetal blood into our bloodstream. Now, our body doesn't want to see anything else in it other than things it's already seen before. So the, the crossing of fetal um, blood cells or cells from the fetus into the circulating bloodstream of the mother can be found in things like the bone marrow or other tissues. And sometimes it will last for decades afterward. So the speculation is that maybe when the body sees these fetal cells in the bloodstream that is seen as other, because the fetal cells have shared genetics from mom and dad, so it is not 100% identical to mom, that the body starts to attack these foreign cells And when it attacks these foreign cells, it inadvertently starts to attack itself. So it could be that the act of giving birth can lead to blood from the fetus mingling more so with the mother. And obviously that 30% increased risk on a cesarean birth may be because there's much more blood commingling that may be happening from the placenta into the woman during those surgical procedures. 
Now, they couldn't really figure out why they saw a 30% reduction in the small percentage of women that actually had an abortion. But going off of this just initial preliminary understanding, there is going to be a lot less uh, fetal cell transmission to mothers in a abortion because it, it was also early in fetal development. It may be not only that our immune system sort of ignores the fetus and this other genetic material in our body, but it may be this commingling of cells. And that may also lead us to ask the question as to why we see so much more autoimmunity in uh, women post-birth. Um, it may not just be the immune system turning back on after pregnancy and the massive hormonal shift, but it may also be that transference of cells. And in a day and age when people would rather schedule their birth rather than let nature take its course, the urge to do C-section, both from a professional standpoint, because it's easier for the medical professional and or for the mother, because it's easy to schedule, may be really damaging because it may increase the likelihood of this fetal cell transfer and the immune system going awry. So what does this ultimately mean to you as a woman if you have an autoimmune condition or you're at risk for an autoimmune condition or you're concerned about an autoimmune condition? So ultimately, the, the take-home message here is our estrogens, all three of our estrogens, but particularly estrone and the metabolites of estrone are pro-inflammatory and they stimulate cytokine activity. Their receptor, we have estrogen receptors alpha and beta. The alpha receptor is not only found on like breast tissue and ovaries, but it's found on immune cells. And that receptor, if it gets heavily stimulated, affect your T cells. By increasing T cell activity, which then creates an inflammatory response, but it also down regulates a regulatory T cell that calms down inflammatory response. So ultimately, estrogen and all those compounds that our body either makes or come in contact with um, that look estrogenic are going to stimulate inflammation, cytokines, autoantibodies, so the production of actual antibodies, and antigens and antigen-presenting cells. So ultimately, all of that leads to a recipe where we are going to have a greater risk for autoimmune conditions. And if you couple that with the probable likelihood that you have a diminished amount of DHEA and testosterone and your other androgen hormones, your rest, restore, and rebuild side of your body, the, the anabolic side of your body is going to be depleted also, which leads you at a, a bigger risk. We know that DHEA, testosterone, and even progesterone are immunosuppressive in comparison. So when they are out of balance, which is what's going to happen naturally at perimenopause, we're going to have a greater risk. What's really interesting too, the significant loss of estrogen, particularly the protective effects of estradiol, can also trigger autoimmunity. So it's very much like Goldilocks when it comes to women's health. We need our hormones. We need them to be balanced with each other. And either too much or too little, particularly of estrogen, can become problematic. And all of that leads to immune stimulation and a greater likelihood for us to develop autoimmune conditions, allergies, and inflammatory response. And we want this wonderful opportunity with our immune system because we are of the species, the one that is going to carry a fetus and make sure that our species goes on so we have a more amplified immune response relative to men. So ultimately, what can you do about it? That's the even more important part. 
So I look at it and say, well, if I'm a reproductive female and I have the opportunity to become pregnant, I'm going to choose to do a vaginal delivery unless it's absolutely required that I have to do a C-section because if it is the commingling of blood from and cells from a fetus to a mother that might stimulate the autoimmunity that we see post-pregnancy, like Hashimoto's in particular, then I want to reduce that likelihood. If I'm a woman with autoimmune history and or risk for it, I want to mitigate those things by taking care of my gut and my health. And we're going to talk a lot about those things. But the other side of it is when I get into my 40s, where I'm heading into perimenopause and menopause, I'm going to really think about the things that I can do to help balance my hormones. And that may mean bioidentical hormones. The beauty of being a nutritionist is I don't have to worry about that. We do that in our clinic, but I myself do not prescribe, but I do think that they are part of an appropriate response for a body that's going to live 30 to 35 years post-fertility. You know, our average lifespan was 57 at 1900. So it didn't matter if you went through menopause at an average age of 52, you died a couple years later, it didn't matter. But if you're going to live to 85 without any hormones, you will have heart disease, osteoporosis, and a greater risk for autoimmunity and a bunch of other conditions because of the loss of those balancing sex hormones. All that to say, we have the ability now, if we understand how this works, we have the ability, even if those hormonal things are shifting for us, that we can make some changes. We can make sure that our cortisol is balanced and we're not stressed out and not sleeping. We can reduce sugar and other things that might increase insulin resistance and obesity, which is a significant risk pattern, especially if I'm a female. So I can address a lot of those other lifestyle components that we're going to talk about in this series and really reduce my autoimmune risk overall. You know, I look at it and think, well, yes, we got the short end of the stick as women, but it's all because nature wants to make sure that we can continue the species. And so we have to just work within that. I hope that you found this recording about what you need to know about estrogen and your hormones, particularly sex hormones related to autoimmunity. And follow me next week because I will go into a whole nother set of causes for autoimmunity and what you need to do about it. Thank you so much for tuning into this functional life. You are why I'm here and I am so very grateful. You're here for a reason. I celebrate your commitment to claiming your youthful energy and stepping into this next phase of life feeling vibrant, healthy, and powerful. I am so proud of you. Hit subscribe so you don't miss any wisdom on creating the most exceptional life on our terms. If this episode helped you in any way, please share it with a friend to spread the love and together we rise. You can follow me on social media at Betty Murray PhD. And if you want a chance to share your story with our tribe or find out more about working with my team, you can sign up at chatwithbetty.com slash podcast. Again, that's chatwithbetty.com slash podcast. See you next week. Bye-bye.